You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Psalm 127. Uh, This Thursday, May 18th, will be the 65th anniversary of the beginning of the filming of one of the greatest movies in history, Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston. And the climactic chariot race, if you've not seen the movie, just flash forward just to the last 17 minutes. It's a great movie, though. But that climactic chariot race is, is one of the most dramatic movie footages in, in history. And for that one race scene, 17-minute race scene, they filmed that five weeks. It took five minute, uh, weeks to film that race scene. And Charlton Heston, for his part, took many weeks to learn how to, to drive a chariot. But even then, he wasn't confident. And so before they filmed that scene, he came to the director of the movie, William Wyler. And he said, I can drive the chariot, but I'm not sure I can win the race. And the director said, your job is just to stay in the chariot. And my job is to make sure you win the race. And so though Heston was tasked with a responsibility, a great responsibility, the, the victory, the outcome was the director's. And when it comes to the family, or any Christian endeavor for that matter, we're going to learn that house represents not just the family or a dynasty, it represents every good endeavor. When it comes to these endeavors, we have responsibilities, for sure. Now, uh, the analogy breaks down here. Even our responsibilities are undergirded by the grace of God. But with that said, we have responsibilities, and yet we must remember in complete dependency that the outcome is the Lord's, always. And that is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is situated in a group of Psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. In Hebrew, Aliyah, Psalms of Ascent. And the pilgrims would sing these psalms corporately. One of the things that American Christians have lost sight of, and for sure there are legitimate shut-ins, but for many Christians in America, we're so individualistic, we think the the life of faith is is an individualistic life, not for the people of God in the Scripture. They would sing these songs corporately as they made their way to worship in Jerusalem at the three major festivals. And and the contents of Psalm 127 would have been uniquely meaningful for them because it deals with one of the central concerns of life, the building of the house. And again, that house in the Old Testament can refer to a a dynasty like we see it used in 2 Samuel 7, David's dynasty, family, 
are also any good endeavor that God has called us to. For instance, in Proverbs 24, 27, where it says, prepare your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. House there is the calling that God has entrusted to every believer, whatever it may be. This is the Psalm of Solomon. He, he writes a few Psalms, such as Psalm 72. Um, but Psalm 127 is a Psalm of Solomon. And he writes from painful experience, just like he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. After all, as you study 1 Kings 9 to 11, his building efforts were reckless. The writer takes note that he spent 13 years building his own house and only seven years building the temple. A point is made there of misplaced priority. Um, his kingdom was ultimately destroyed because of his apostasy and his, his own children turned from the Lord. We see all that in 1 Kings 9 to 11. And so if anyone has wisdom birthed from very painful experiences brought on by their own sin, it's King Solomon. As we begin this psalm, the first thing we see, and Solomon speaks from experience, and we need to have ears to hear here. Unless the Lord builds, there is no enduring house. Look with me in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now we saw a word, that word unless, used last week. It's a very important word in the scriptures. Uh, last week we saw unless a grain of wheat falls to the grain and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that little seemingly harmless word unless has great meaning in the scriptures. And we see the word used here twice, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches. Don't overlook that name, Lord. This is not Adonai, the generic name for God. This is Yahweh. This is the covenantal name. This is uh, the name of the one that only believers can know in a saving way. This is the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the God revealed here in Psalm 127, the covenantal Lord. And so right off the bat, the Psalm, we're reminded everything is in vain, fruitless, has no enduring value that is not built by the Lord. And of course, we know greater than Solomon that the agent of the Lord's work is the Son of God, the greater Son of David, the one greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the agent by which God does all things in the created order. The Lord, through the mediating work, the agency of the greater Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the decisive factor in everything. Either it'll be the Lord's doing or 
your endeavors, your house will be in vain. In fact, he uses the word vain here three times. You see it two times in in verse one and one time in verse two. There's a Latin motto, which is a pretty well known motto in church history uh, called, and the name of it is, or the, the, the phrase is Nisi Dominus Frusta. It's translated in this way, without the Lord, frustration. It comes from this verse, Psalm, Psalm 127.1, without the Lord, frustration. That truth is undefeated. That truth has never had an exception. Without the Lord, frustration, vanity. I recently read about a college in in London called Melbourne Village College. Actually, it's in England. Not sure if it's in London. That had that phrase, without the Lord, frustration, as its school motto until 2011. And because of a student vote, they decided uh, to go with something they perceived as more relevant than that phrase, without the Lord, frustration. And their new motto is inspiring minds. But the irony, I think, is palatable. Because unless the Lord builds... Without the Lord, it doesn't matter how inspired your mind might be in your estimation. The psalmist here, Solomon, is telling us it will ultimately lead to vanity and frustration. In fact, if you read the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they're to be read together. Because you can't preach all of them in one sermon. You, you wouldn't have anybody come back next Sunday. But, but they are to be read together. And in Psalm 124, here's what the psalmist writes. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then the flood would have swept us away. That's essentially what he's saying. If the Lord is not on our side, if he's not in the building efforts, your inspired mind will be swept away. And will be a, a vain pursuit. Now I want you to note the word watches here. This is the Hebrew word shemar. Now why do I give you that? Generally, the English translations that we have are really strong and, and you don't need to know the original word except I think Solomon is making a point that we need to see here. The first time that word watches is used in the Bible, is in Genesis 2.15, where it says the Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, and here it is, to keep it, Shemar. It's the same word. So he put this unfallen man in the garden, a man without sin. And, and I think Solomon has that in mind. Uh, Because he's saying, even with an unfallen man, he he was impotent to keep the garden. He didn't keep out the serpent. Look at Adam in his unfallen state. He failed to keep the serpent out. Only the Lord can keep 
Only the Lord can watch over any endeavor or city or, or family for that matter. Outside of that, it's, it's vain. And Solomon isn't done with his thoughts on vanity and vain pursuits. Notice in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, this metaphorically speaks of the self-sufficient person. This is something that I struggle with. Maybe you do as well. Who believes by his own or her own dogged efforts and devotion and discipline and dedication, it will bring about the desired outcome. And Solomon is saying here, without the Lord, without dependency on the Lord, it will just lead to further enslavement. And it's not just that your pursuits will fail. In this case, um, there is eating of bread. Eating the bread. There's fruit from the efforts, but how can one enjoy it? That's what he's saying. Leonard Wolf was a uh, very well-known English writer in the 20th century. And he was uh, not only a, a writer, he was involved in uh, political journalism and other things. And he was married to Virginia Woolf, who was an English writer, who very acclaimed writer. But at the end of his life, here's what he said. And I think it's a good illustration of what Solomon is saying here. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. Uh, this is the man who, who did it without the Lord. The world today and the history of the human anthill would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I therefore, I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Wolf clearly ate, to use the psalmist here, the bread of anxious toil, which is picking up again Genesis 3, where Moses writes, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's one of the judgments that came by living life independent of, of God. He's directing us back to Genesis 3 here. And he's saying, if all you're trying to do is self-sufficient pursuits, you know what you get? You get Genesis 3 all over again. And that truth in itself is what concerns me about many Christian families. There are many well-meaning parents who want to give their children what they did not have. And so they flit about going from this place to that place on weekends. Not saying it's wrong to take a trip or a vacation, of course not. But they schedule church around all these things. And corporate life rather than scheduling all these other things, activities to better their kids' future. And corporate life gets left out. 
Corporate life doesn't become a part of the DNA of their children. And then they wonder when their children graduate, why they're no longer in church. Because they've lived their family existence as if corporate life isn't necessary. Just an add-on. And remember, this psalm was read and sung in the context of corporate life, corporate worship. It was sung corporately as they made their way into the festivals. And Solomon says there's an eternally better way. And you see it implied in the last part of verse 2. For he gives to his beloved sleep. That seems to really not belong there. How does, what does that have to do with the Lord building the house? Well, sleep here is a metaphor for the life and the family that is submitted to the Lord. And the shalom, the rest, and the peace that comes from that. Now, he is not negating human responsibility. There's human responsibility found throughout this chapter. But if you lose sight of that tension, that it has to be the Lord who does the work, lest it be a vain project, but we do have human responsibility in the equation, we will either overwork or underwork, and in both cases it leads to fretful anxiety. But when you know that the one who calls you beloved, I love that, and he calls everyone beloved who has received his provision for sin and salvation. And we know better than even the psalmist that it comes through the Son of God who took our sin debt and paid it in full and was raised from the grave. When we, the beloved, recognize this God as being sovereign and wise over our endeavors, it makes for a soft pillow at night. Now, in verse 3, we come to the hinge verse. And so we've seen, unless the Lord builds, there's no enduring house. But here's the good news. When the Lord builds, there is an enduring heritage. And don't we want that? Don't all of us want that, an enduring heritage? We want our lives to have mattered in the end. Well, look at me in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And so I think the two halves of this psalm are well illustrated by Genesis chapter 11. In the first half of Genesis chapter 11, you have this Babel building project that is exercised by sinful man for security and and for Uh, self-glory. That's seeking to build apart from the Lord, right? It led to vanity, right? But in the second part of Genesis 11, we see something less spectacular. Uh, It wouldn't have made the front news, okay, of uh, the, the Israeli times, if you will. God quietly comes to a man named Terah, an obscure man, And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And the son's name was Abram. And through that son, 
that heritage continues to multiply even to this day. Heritage is something that is passed down from one generation to the next that endures in contrast to something that is vain. And for that heritage, you see here in Psalm 127, nothing is said of money, nothing is said of uh, career or power or prestige or fame, nothing is said of academic degrees, none of that. Bearing children, having family, that's God's strategy. We've seen that since Genesis 1:28, when God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. The enemy, who was the superior angel, the most superior angel in my estimation, but who had rebelled, understood well God's strategy for the world. God's strategy from the world from Genesis 1 on was the family. And so what does he do? He comes and he seeks to destroy the family. That's been his strategy ever since. And what does God do in response? Essentially, he comes to the serpent. He says, you know that couple there that you deceived? That woman is going to have a baby. And through the childbearing of that woman, a baby will come who will crush your head. And that becomes the strategy for history. Yes, that baby is one of a kind. No one compares to that baby, but a precedence is set. How will, how does God defeat and oppose his enemies? He brings babies in the world and brings them under godly parents. What the psalmist implies are archers. Notice in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Are the children of one's youth. So here, the children are depicted as arrows and the parents are archers who shoot those arrows. Verse 5, blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is, are the parents who feels his quiver, their quiver with them. Now, this is not inferring those that can't have children or don't have children are cursed. That's not what it's inferring at all. But there is a blessing that comes with a quiver full of arrows. That's what he's saying here. It's a blessing. It's a blessing that our country largely doesn't recognize how many times have we been out with our five children and, and people look at us like we have two heads. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. And so parents, and let me just tell you how the scripture depicts it, parents led by godly fathers are depicted as warrior archers here. And the children are the arrows. This is warfare language. It's warfare language. Everything, and I want you to remember this, parents. I have, to I have to preach this to myself as well. Everything our children face while on our watch, while in our home, is for the purpose of preparing them to be arrows shot into the world 
a world opposed. So when they go through their struggles, and man, when they go through the struggles, you hurt worse than they do. When they go through their disappointments and when they go through them, you go through them worse than they do. I promise you. Every child needs to understand that. When they go through their pains, and they will. When their sin is exposed, for that matter, as trying as it may be for us as parents, we need to see these as opportunities to sharpen them as arrows. God is preparing them. We are the parents. We are preparing them. God is preparing them to shoot them into the world. Sharp arrows are God's battle plan. We see that from the very beginning. For instance, in Deuteronomy, uh, God gives instructions to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7 to 9 about how to, to go into the land filled with Canaanites whose iniquity have reached their fulfillment, Genesis 15, 16. And the way they worshiped was by appeasing the gods, the Canaanite gods, by child sacrifice. That's how they worshiped. They literally killed babies. I'm glad our country uh, doesn't follow that. But they would offer their babies to satisfy the gods, whatever those gods may be. That was the wickedness of the Canaanites. And God called Israel to be the, the instrument of judgment. But just prior to that, in Deuteronomy 6, what does he say? Parents, teach the law to your children. All right, about the book of Samuel. Samuel is about God reversing the sin pattern uh, that is epidemic in the book of Judges. And how does it begin? It begins with a woman praying for a, a baby. And she has a son. And it will be through that son we see that sin pattern begin to be reversed in the book of Samuel. So how does God change the world? Not by politics. Now, certain politics are worse than other politics. We know that. There are evil expressions of politics today that are bringing devastation on this country. But not even good politics produce righteousness. All that good politics can do is restrain evil for a time. How does God change the world? By godly families centered on corporate life. You say, where is that in the text? Again, this psalm was to be read in the context of corporate worship. Godly families centered on corporate life. Families who worship together in the context of the local church. And note, we are preparing our children for a world opposed. Notice, he shall not put to shame. He shall not be put to shame. Who is he? Is it the man or his quiver? I think contextually it's both. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so we're sending our, our children out. It's God's strategy to take on the enemies of God. And I think today... A central enemy in our culture is cultural Marxism, which is rooted in atheism, and it has a strong anti-family impulse. Why? Because 
nuclear family doesn't need the government to be the big daddy. And so they go after the family so that the government can be the big daddy. It's a big issue. And let me just give you one of a numeral of examples on that. Her name, and you've probably never heard of it, is Kate Millett. She was a PhD student at Columbia who became a professor there. She wrote a monumental book that was published in 1970. It was actually her dissertation, Sexual Politics. And it was used in most universities for decades. Um, and and his, her thesis, her goal in her book is to, is to take on what she called the vile patriarchy of monogamous nuclear family. Let me tell you how strategic this book was and is. Doubleday Books, which has been around for over 100 years, maybe a hundred and quarter years now, one of the longest standing publishing houses, calls it one of its 10 most important books it's ever published, Sexual Politics. But her sister Mallory went to visit her and she tells about this in an article in 2014. Her sister Mallory went to visit her sister who was a communist, registered communist. And this was 1969. And when she gets there, it's New York City. And Kate is still writing the book. She's finishing the book that will be published in 1970. And she invited her sister Mallory to what she called a consciousness raising group. And they opened the meeting with a recitation. It was like a worship service in a very real sense. And that recitation, I think, prophetically reveals the playbook of the progressives today. And here's what the, cha the chairperson asked. It was a female. Why are we here today? They responded, to make revolution. What kind of revolution? They chanted, the cultural revolution. And how do we make cultural revolution? By destroying the American family, they said. And how do we destroy the family? By destroying the American patriarch, that is going after the men. And how do we destroy the American patriarch? And here's what they said, by taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. How can we destroy monogamy? And their answer was, I quote, by promoting promiscuity and eroticism. Wow, doesn't that sound like headline news today? This was 1969. And here's what Mallory, Kate's sister, said in this article that I read from 2014. It was clear. They desired nothing less than the utter destruction of Western society. How would they do this? They would invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution. This included ju the judiciary, our judges, the legislatures, the executive branches, media, and education. Universities, high schools, K through 12s, school boards, and get this, the library system. Think that's relevant today? This was 1969. 
And let me add two other ways they do that to now. Internet pornography, the coming after monogamy, and Hollywood. Hollywood. Hollywood uh, just recently, in the last 10 days, held a telethon for drag queens. Why? They're raising money to support drag queens who in turn are seeking to groom our children. This playbook goes all the way back to the 60s. They're coming after the family. Why? Because the nuclear family doesn't need government. It doesn't need a takeover. And God's anecdote for this anti-family revolution is simple. It's not even in politics. It's godly parents. It's godly families shaping their arrows in such a way that those arrows are fit and worthy to be shot into a world opposed. But let me offer you this before we close. Um, Though this is another sermon for another day, Though marriage is the norm, you don't have to be married. You don't have to have a spouse. You don't have to have children to have a heritage. Jesus himself was single. He was never married. And he was fully human. He was fully human. In fact, Paul says that there are circumstances, 1 Corinthians 7, in which it's better for one to remain single for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And so we cannot say that for everyone, marriage and family is always a condition for reaching your full potential. That's not true. Marriage does not belong to the essence of being human. Again, although unmarried, Jesus fulfilled his mission, didn't he? In fact, the night before the cross, and this should be encouraging to every single person here, He prays, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work you've given me to do. Jesus, a single man, never married, was able to glorify the Father and accomplish his calling as a single person. But with that said, the general norm is marriage and family. And with Charlton Heston we have the responsibility to metaphorically drive our chariots, don't we? For the family, for the Christian family, and this sounds legalistic to some, but again, if you, one day I'm gonna preach on the church and I'm gonna show you that the Christian life can't be lived outside corporate life unless you're providentially hindered as a shut-in. For the Christian family, this means making corporate worship the center of your family life, being tethered to the church and being tethered to the gospel that built that church and produced that church, being tethered to the word of God. If you choose to do it another way, Solomon warns, vanity, vanities. The Lord will not be in it. He will not build your house. But when you commit yourself to the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, 
Let me just tell you, you can trust that the Lord will work in that and your family will win. And that win is much more glorious than a chariot race. But maybe you're here. And if you're honest, if you're an honest parent, you struggle at times with the guilt of not being the perfect parent, right? You struggle with the guilt of not having the perfect family of faith, right? You do. That gospel I've just been speaking about is the anecdote for your guilt. None of us do it perfectly, right? None of us. Some of us have dropped the ball more than others, but all of us have dropped the ball in many ways as parents. But what the gospel does is it resolves us of our guilt because Jesus Christ took the guilt. That's, that's the glory of the gospel. He took the guilt. So what we celebrated the baptism this morning. God's judgment for our guilt was poured out on the Son instead of us, if you believe. Not only does he take the guilt, he begins to restore the years the locusts have taken away. And that very gospel can restore what's been broken in your family. Or maybe you've trust, you realize that you haven't even started the process. You've never even trusted in Jesus. And your own little metaphorical personal house has not been built on the gospel. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to that today as Adam and the musicians come forward. It begins with recognizing you're a sinner. That's a tough thing to say every week. It really is. To stand up in front of you every week and to say, we are sinners. It's hard, but it's true. And your greatest problem is not outside of you, it's inside of you. If you're a mother here, your greatest problem is not your husband, it's not your children, it's you. If you're a father, your greatest problem is not your children or your, or your wife, it's, it's you. If you're a child, your greatest problem is not your parents or your siblings, it's you. And the only way for that to be addressed is to come to the one who took our sins in full on the cross. And if you will trust in Jesus today, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You'll begin to build a house there a heritage there that will endure forever. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.